Hello and welcome to the Steps to Investing podcast and to episode two of our second series. Our aim as ever is to bring you news, hints and ideas all designed for the novice investor. I'm Simon Longfellow. And I'm Marcus De Silva. And on the programme this week, Tesco increases its dividend to shareholders, pub doors shut, and in markets we look at the flip-flopping of US stimulus measures and Trump the super spreader. Also this week we speak to Sunday Times journalist, blogger and investor Faith Archer about how to choose a fund. What's the process she goes through and how does she narrow down the choice from the thousands out there to something more palatable? Okay, on with the show. And first, let's get a roundup of the latest news in markets and companies. Marcus, you've been looking at the week in markets. What's been happening? Yeah, I mean, it's a surprise, surprise, really. Uh, the US is dominating the narrative at the moment. And we're seeing sentiment and prices swing fairly wildly on the news on the president's health and also difficulties in getting this fiscal stimulus bill passed there. So the end of the week saw markets plummet as news emerged that the president had contracted coronavirus alongside a number of his White House staff and a few US senators. Trump was admitted to hospital Friday. The weekend progressed and by Monday, thanks to top class medical care, a cocktail of antibiotics and rather odd medical press conferences complete with awkward background doctors, Donald Trump returned to the White House, seemingly back to normal and loaded up to the eyeballs on steroids. Markets don't like uncertainty, but Trump's return to the White House, and no doubt soon the campaign trail, gave some comfort that the entire upper echelons of US government were not going to be downed by a presidential super spreader event. The calm didn't last long with Trump tweeting on Tuesday that he was going to end all negotiations on the stimulus bill until after the election, sending markets into a brief tailspin. Never a dull moment. He then appeared to reverse his position on Wednesday, tweeting details of parts of the deal, including much-needed relief for the airline industry, and indicating to Nancy Pelosi that he was ready to sign. With the drama over, for now, markets seem to be pricing in two things that a stimulus deal won't get done before the election, but possibly in the lame duck session before January, and also that Biden has now increasingly likely to win, having extended his lead in the polls over the past week. The S&P 500 sits 33 points higher at 3,418. European markets have posted a pretty strong week this week, with German data continuing to be better than expected, and more economically sensitive sectors such as banks, travel and leisure, financials, autos and oil and gas, all rising on the hope of fresh US stimulus. Sign of a Brexit trade deal also aided sentiment. This year has seen a particular boost to technology and healthcare stocks in Europe due to the pandemic. This is good news as it's skewing the European market increasingly towards these higher growth sectors. But European tech stocks this week took a dive alongside their counterparts in America because Congress is beginning to grumble over potential market abuse from some of the really big mega cap players like Facebook, Amazon, Alphabet and Apple, which could point to further curbs down the line. I'm sure the European tech players as well will be carefully watching the Watchdog Competition Commission's Margaret Vestager and what she has to say over the coming days. 
All in all, the stock 600 is up 7 points to 367. The French CAC 40 is up 137 points to 4,907. And the German DAX is up 449 points to 13,007. In the UK, there were some positive trading updates from bookmaker CVC Holdings and also Tesco, and markets appreciated the stimulus hope bump. But they are wrestling with fears over a second lockdown, the possibility of which is getting greater as new measures become increasingly tighter on our movements. Still, the FTSE 100 is up 97 points to 5,974. In Asia, not much really to report there. Markets are tracking the globe and following US elections pretty tightly. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, moving on now, let's look at some of the companies that have been in the news this week. You mentioned Tesco. The new chief executive of Tesco, Ken Murphy, has indicated he will continue a policy of dividend increases for shareholders. This week, the company announced a 20% increase in the half-year payout, up from 265 p last year to 3.2p for each share held this year. This comes despite significant increased costs for the company as a result of the pandemic. That reached £530 million in the first half of this year. Supermarket rival Sainsbury's is yet to decide whether it will pay out a dividend for this year. Brewer and pub owner Green King, based in Bury St Edmunds and founded in 1799, is to keep the pumps turned off, at least temporarily, on 79 of its pubs and restaurants, and is to begin the process of making 800 people redundant. The move comes as restrictions tighten on pubs and where they can serve alcohol, with the Financial Times reporting that England could soon follow Scotland's new ban on serving beer indoors. The BBC has reported that around a third of those 79 sites will close permanently. Flatpak furniture retailer IKEA is bucking the trend for online shopping, reporting a record number of new store openings this year. It said that it's in its current financial year, it will open 50 new stores, mainly in urban areas or smaller stores, rather than the big warehouse-type shops it has become famous for. Revenues at the company have been hit by the global pandemic, with Inter-IKEA reporting a 4% decrease in sales for the year ending August 2020. And finally, budget airline uh, EasyJet has announced its first ever annual loss, amounting to some £800 million this year. The 25-year-old carrier also said it will be flying at 25% of its normal capacity well into next year. EasyJet has already taken a £600 million loan from the government and cut 4,500 jobs, but is calling for more help from the state. Rival carrier Ryanair has said that the upcoming winter travel season will be a write-off. OK, so that's the week in markets and companies. Let's move on now to our feature interview. This week, Marcus spoke to Sunday Times journalist and personal finance blogger Faith Archer. Here's how they got on. So how do you go about actually choosing a fund? 
There are so many out there. In the UK alone, there's around 3,500 funds. There's a further 400 investment trusts. And there's many more passive products or ETFs or trackers. And they all look very similar in terms of what they say on the tin. This is a question that Faith Archer answers in the first of our Steps to Investing guides, where to invest over the next year. She's a journalist for, amongst others, The Times, The Sunday Times, The Financial Times, all the times, and has a personal finance blog, Much More With Less. And she's here with me today to discuss some of the major themes in her article. Faith Archer, welcome. Glad to be here. Okay, so in terms of the investing journey, Faith, let's say you've already made some of the earlier decisions in the journey, such as considering some financial goals and how much risk you want to take. And then you've also decided how you want to divvy up your portfolio between investments. So made decisions like the type of assets you want to invest in, like shares or bonds, or whether you want to aim for a particular country in the developed markets or emerging, etc. What's now next? If you've had a think about how you are going to divide up your money between, say, different parts of the world, different types of investments, um, in other words, what's called your asset allocation, um, then the first thing to do is to pick a specific sector um, so that, for example, if you know you want to have some shares, some equities, um, and within that there will be different sectors, um, that are groups of funds, um, and the sector name will tell you where they invest. So, for example, if you want to invest worldwide in big companies, then you might hone in on global large cap. And that just splits this huge universe of funds down into a smaller group so you can actually choose what the you know choose the right fund for you out of that sector where's a good place to find sector information will fund platforms give you a reliable idea there's loads of places that you can get information um places like citywire and morningstar um you can search uh, for funds within sectors on those and as you say the different investment platforms such as Hargreaves Lansdowne Interactive Investor they will have loads of research too and they will enable you to search by sector and look at different funds compare different funds within them okay let's move on to another big decision that you'll have to make and that's whether or not to opt for an active or passive fund now there's a lot of debate in the industry about the virtues of these two approaches so faith what do you think the pros and cons are for the private investor and do you have a preference over one or the other? Well, I, I have to be honest here, I do hold a mixture of both. Um, so I think the theory of active funds sounds brilliant. You've got a professional fund manager and their whole job is to pick and choose different shares or you know different other investments. Um, trying to beat the stock market or the particular benchmark they've chosen. Um, and just as in, you know, in good times, they will be trying to choose a great selection of investments to boost your returns. And if markets are falling, they can move money around so you don't lose so much and they will charge accordingly. Now, theory sounds great. Um, in practice, it's notoriously hard to outperform the market year after year. And so an alternative is to take a passive route. And this is when you say, you know what, I'm not even gonna try to beat the market. I just want to match the same performance as the market because I can see over time, you get your ups and downs, but overall it trends upwards. 
Um, so a passive fund will just try and match or track the performance of a particular stock market index or other index, such as um, the performance of um, the FTSE 100, Britain's 100 biggest companies. Um, and they, because they're just trying to match the same performance, hold the same investments, they can charge lower fees and be a lot cheaper. Um, so the kind of difference I'm talking about is that uh, you might you might see fees for an active fund of about 1% a year, whereas passive funds can dip under 0.1%. Yeah, just to follow up on that, Faith, I mean, it's probably fair to say there's quite a lot of heightened unusual risk in the market at the moment. I mean, there's obviously the pandemic, um, but there's quite a raw US election going on and, and there's trade wars that are, that are happening that are uncoupling um, globalization across the world. Um, there might be a view that particularly now having a human being steering a fund's investments through these kind of risks might be a good idea. Do you agree with that view? Well, again, I think it sounds amazing in theory, and I'm really looking forward to the, the research, the number crunching that shows whether active fund managers have absolutely delivered that um, because, you know, there are going to be some that don't. Uh, you would hope there's some that do. Um, and what we can see if you opt for a more passive passive approach is if you look back over the long term, then the amount of times that um, funds that markets spend rising uh, tends to be a lot longer um, than the bear markets when prices are falling. So, you know, overall, over the longer term, um, passive funds um, are still going still gonna, to still gonna rise in the market, still going to do pretty well. Uh, I think the one thing that you really do want to avoid, though, is paying the higher fees for an active fund, which actually is just hedging its bets and following the market anyway. That's what's called a closet tracker. Um, and if you want to avoid paying over the odds for what effectively is just a, a passive tracker fund, then have a look at the alpha um, that the manager has generated. So alpha, um, if you've got a high alpha, that shows that the fund has done better um, relative to its benchmark, and therefore it might actually be worth paying that extra for the active fund. Okay, that's interesting. Well, let's say that you have decided to choose an active fund. And when you're sort of looking at fund literature, you're often blasted with lots of information. So I wanted to focus in on some of those key things that you reckon investors should look at. And let's start with performance, because, you know, you always find it, but it's always caveated with um, the fact that it's not a guide to future. So what should you look at with performance? Because surely this should be a part of your decision making process, right? Absolutely. You know, it, no, not necessarily a guarantee of future on future returns. But on the other hand, you don't want to be a, you don't want to be buying a fund that's been dead in the water for decades either. Um, so the first thing I would look at is longer term performance. So uh, something might have had shoot the lights out returns. Um, but if that's been over, say, three months, six months, even a year, that could actually just have been a lucky break. So when I'm researching funds, I would look at minimum five years. Ideally, I'd like to see longer and see that the fund has managed to survive and thrive in different market conditions. I think the other thing you need to look at, um, the theory of really high returns sounds great. Um, but in practice, you need to think about your own attitude to risk, because if you've got a fund that's, you know, up 20% over a year, amazing. How would you feel if that same fund then dipped 20% the next year? 
because if you would if that would stop you sleeping at night and it, you might be tempted to sell your shares for less than you bought them and pull the money out um that's not a great way to get ahead in investing that's pretty direct to losing money so you need to think about what would you how much would you be comfortable with your balance bouncing up and down how much risk do you actually want to take you also mention in your article around track records of fund managers. I mean, what are you looking for here? And are there any good resources that can sort of point you in the right direction? Uh, well, partly, uh, similar to looking to long-term performance, longer-term performance of a, a fund, I'm interested in um, fund managers who stuck around to deliver their results. Uh, so if you have a particular fund in, in mind, then one of the first sources of information you can go to, each fund will have a fund fact sheet that will tell you who the manager is, when they started at the fund, you can then Google their name, um, read interviews with them, read you know uh, analysis of their um, approach, um, and if you want to kind of get uh, the stats on it, um, then information providers such as CityWire do do fund manager ratings, so that can give you a bit of a steer on who's um, right across multiple funds that a manager might run, how well they've done overall. Okay, let's move on to fees. I mean, we were discussing them a little bit when we were talking about active and passive there. I mean, these are always tiny, you know, tiny differences in small percentages, um, especially when compared to the amount of money that you're putting in into investments. Um, but this can have a big impact, can't it, over the long term? It absolutely can. Um, as you say, differences of half a percent or one percentage point might not sound very much. But if you are investing over decade after decade into retirement and beyond, they will really add up. Um, because remember, it's not just that you miss out, you have to pay one percent of the money in when you very first invest. Um, but then you miss out on the future growth of that 1% the next year and every year afterwards and any dividends that that 1% might have generated that year and every year afterwards. And so the longer you're investing for, the bigger the difference it will make. Um, and if you, you cannot control the stock market, but you can control your fees and therefore looking for lower cost options, whether that is for the funds themselves or for the investment platform that you use, both those things will help boost your returns over the long term. Yeah, and I think, you know, I've heard some people describe it as as the reverse of compounding. We know compounding is pretty powerful. Albert Einstein described compound interest as the eighth wonder of the world. So this is kind of the reverse of that. And it's increasingly sort of chipping away at your, your return potential there. Um, OK, finally, let's move on to the structure of a fund. So in the active world, I mean, I think the big the big difference here is between funds and investment trusts. And I mentioned earlier that there's three and a half thousand funds, about 400 investment trusts. Um, I'm a big fan of investment trusts. I've got to say I worked um, specifically on investment trusts for five years. Faith, I, I think you're kind of in agreement with me there. Is that right? Um, yes, I do hold the actively managed investments that I, I have are investment trusts. And I think that there, there are a few reasons why I think it's worth looking at investment trusts. Um, fundamentally, if you look back historically, then on average, investment trusts have delivered higher returns for lower costs over time compared to unit trusts. And, you know, that, that is basically what every investor wants. Um, so why this might be, um, one, of the, one of the factors for me is that investment trust managers can take a longer term approach to their investments. 
um, because they're much less likely than managers of unit trust to be forced to sell their assets in a hurry if lots of investors want to sell their shares. So that can make them a particularly good structure for holding the kind of investments that are harder to sell. I'm thinking there are things like property and companies that aren't listed on stock markets. Um, also, investment trusts are allowed to borrow um, to invest, which unit trusts aren't. Um, that's called gearing. Um, and the good news is that if you borrow money to invest and your investments do well, that will turbocharge the returns. Um, the risk is that um, equally, if things are plummeting, um, it will turbocharge the losses. So if you are considering investment, a particular investment trust, have a look at what the percentage is of borrowing, the percentage gearing, because um, you might not want that to be too high. Um, and the third thing that can be particularly good about the investment trusts is if you are looking for more predictable income, for example, if you're retired, because investment trusts are allowed to hold back some of the returns in good years to pay out when times are more troubled. Um, and the, as a result of this, I think there's nearly 20 different investment trusts that have been paying out rising dividends year after year for the last 20 years. Um, so they could, um, those kind of investment trusts could be a good part of um, investing for retirement, for example. Faith Archer, thanks very much for joining us. Not at all. Good to talk to you. Well, I hope you found that interesting. Faith is a great journalist and she certainly covered a few different points there. And it's a it's a big topic, you know, having to choose a fund when, as I sort of said in the interview, you get blasted with all this different data. Um, Simon, let's let's have your view on this. You know, uh, she mentioned sectors. Are there other ways to sort of slice and dice this huge universe of funds? Yeah, uh, the short answer to that is yes, there, there are, um, and there are quite a lot, lot of them. Um, Hargreaves Lansdowne is a platform, they're the guys I use for, for my investing, and they've got all kinds of different ways of slicing and dicing uh, funds. You can look at them by how much income they're generating, how often uh, they pay that income, what the performance has been like over one, three, five uh, years, number of holdings in a, in a fund, you know, how many uh, in individual investments are there, and of course, um, you, you can look at um, uh, uh, just a complete list of everything coming from a particular fund manager. I think all of those are really helpful, really useful. Uh, where I tend to start, I mean, I do tend to start with uh, with sectors, um, but but also um, investment objective as well. I think it's quite important. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, I was just looking at that list. I didn't know about holdings. Um, and I think that's an interesting one, especially at the moment. We talk a lot about diversification. Yeah. So finding portfolios that aren't, going to be susceptible to big price swings we, we, we call it volatility um, you know that's that's one of those things that I probably think is quite sensible at the moment given given the sort of huge risks that are existing in markets at the moment um, let's get on to investment objective and we didn't talk about it in the pod but she mentions these in her article so don't forget to read that guide um, what do, what do you, what do you think of, uh, of this yeah I mean every, so every fund um, open closed ended uh, ETF they all have a stated um, objective um, and usually it's around one of three things it's either generating an income generating growth in the value of your money your, your capital in other words or a bit of both. Um, and those are stated, they're written, they're on the 
you know fun fact sheet they'll be on the fund uh, page on every uh, manager uh, has um so you know you, you need to be clear about what you're trying to uh, achieve with your investment whether you're aiming for income or growth or, or a bit of both um and make sure that the funds you're looking at are uh, you know in that category um one thing you will see on specifically on open-ended uh, funds in their name usually is whether they're offering you income units or accumulation units in that fund and basically the, the only difference between the two is that the income units pay out your income to you and the accumulation units take the income from the investments and reinvest it automatically in more units in the fund so that can be great if you're trying to you know grow the total value of your fund over time uh, you know, you want to you want to go down the route of the accumulation variant of that fund. If you need the income, you want to spend it on something else. You're, you know, you're paying your uh, monthly outgoings from that income. Then you need the the income uh, units. And just to say, you know, even if it's a if the objective of the fund is to provide income, you can still buy accumulation units. Yes, yes. You don't. The, you don't. One doesn't have to go with the other. That's that's bang on. Yeah. Okay. On to the active and passive debate. Now, I kind of have a view that maybe this is slightly a debate for the industry and why would private investors care as much. Uh, what's your view? Yeah, I think I think that's probably tr- true. The industry just bang on about it all the time. And, uh, you know, my view is it's, it's horses for courses. If, if you're wanting to do something that is pretty straightforward, pretty vanilla, you know, you want to buy... Uh, large UK companies, for example, then buying a FTSE 100 tracker um, is probably the right way to go. You know, the costs are so cheap on on those things, um, and the value that is added by the fund manager in a market like that, um, you know, is is questionable. You're probably better going down the passive route. But where the, you know, there's a point of difference. There's something more complicated. It's an asset class that's not as well known and as, as well researched, say, as the biggest 100 companies in the UK. Then that's where active management might come into its, uh, you know, into its own. I mean, we, you know, we'll come on to talk about cost in a, a bit more detail in a sec. But you know, d- don't forget that just because something is cheap, it doesn't necessarily mean it's great. You know, um, sometimes it's worth paying for. Um, you know, a, a fund manager to be involved when they're making active uh, decisions. How do you? How can you tell? There's this thing called active share, which you may have heard of. It, it's basically a measure of how different the fund manager is from his benchmark. So a high active share number, it's a scale of zero to a hundred. A high active share number means the fund manager is making lots of decisions away from the benchmark. And a low active share number, so zero, would mean that he's basically just buying the benchmark. If if you're thinking about a fund that has a low active share number, you know, just check it out in a bit more detail. You usually find that number on the fact sheet, by the way, but but check it out because you might find that buying a tracker is a cheaper way of achieving the same thing. Yeah, and I think I just just to add to that, I mean, without going into the nuances of um, this too much, you know, I was speaking to some professional fund selectors. And, you know, one of the things that they would say that we would do is, you know, go go out, try and find a good active manager for the particular asset or market that you're looking for. But if that fails and you really can't find someone you think is, you know, top quality and really good and going to serve you well, then if you buy a passive instead, then even though you've got no chance of outperformance, you've got no chance of beating a benchmark because it effectively is the benchmark. 
by blending the two things together in your total portfolio, what you're doing is you're bringing your investment costs down because that blend together will be lower than if you just had active. And of course, it will cost you a bit more than if you just have passive, but at least then you've got the opportunity to outperform there a little bit. Yeah. Um, all right, past performance. I mean, this has got to be an important one, as I said. It is. I mean, you know, I do look at past performance when I'm thinking about my uh, investments, but I'm also, um, I suppose, more thinking about what are the future prospects for this investment. You know, how, how can you, uh, you know, measure that? Yes, past performance is, is one of those things. But, you know, has this product got a mandate? Is it doing something in the future? Is it buying, you know, companies in the future that are going to uh, perform well? And, you know, that's very difficult to uh, to assess but uh, you know I, I, that's where I tend to to, to look at. I mean, the, the other thing about performance as well um, is you know you you can look at this in both absolute terms. So has my hundred pounds invested gone up or down? But you can also look at it in relative terms. You know how has my investment fared relative to other investments of the same type? Um, so you know if I was buying a, a a U.S. smaller companies fund, you know ha- has that uh, fund perform worse than the sector is it better than the sector how is that manager doing relative to his peers you know you don't have to just look at uh, has has my you know has my investment got gone up or gone down in absolute terms yeah and i think you know the reason for this big caveat that the regulators force on this is that fund managers are human beings and they can have off years or off many years and also the styles that they that worked for them maybe for a decade maybe for two decades or whatever can suddenly stop not working i mean that is a possibility markets are getting more efficient all the time, um, the ease of information about companies, et cetera, et cetera. So there's lots of reasons why things can change and and economies and markets can evolve um, and their style might not work. So I think that's part of the reason why it shouldn't be this thing that you really, really rely on uh, because, you know, you don't know what will happen in the future. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, fees. So, I mean, another hot topic. What, what's your view on fees? Yeah, I mean, it just makes my head hurt every time I think about it, frankly. I mean, it's so complicated and the industry just doesn't help itself at, at all. There's no single number that you can say that's the total cost of ownership because there are different people involved. There's a fund manager, they take a fee. There's a platform, they take a fee. The government, they take some tax and, you know, it all gets a bit uh, complicated, so it's really hard to get a sort of sense of how much am I paying in total. But if I was looking at fun- just the fund element, you know, in its in itself, the number to look at is the ongoing charges figure, the OCF. It's a single figure that's comparable across uh, all types of, of funds. So uh, whether they're active or passive, whether they're closed or open um, uh, structures, everyone, everything has an, o- an OCF. Um, and you know that's that is kind of where you know where I would start. I go back to my earlier point though that cheap doesn't always mean good, ex- uh, expensive doesn't always mean bad, and it, you know what you should do is just compare really within the the sphere that you're looking. So if you're looking at you know UK smaller companies, I mentioned them. Yeah, you're looking at UK smaller companies. How expensive is this fund relative to all of the other funds in the sector? How is it? Uh, compare against a, a, an exchange traded fund. How does it compare against you know open and closed? D- just to give you a, a sense of, are you getting some kind of value for money? Faith was right. The more you pay, uh, the less 
in, in fees, the less returns or the harder your investment has to work before you get those returns. So it is important, but I wouldn't obsess about it. People tend to obsess about it, and you know, it's not the right answer to obsess about it. It's part of the mix, but you know, d- don't don't worry too much about it. Yeah, I mean, I think just one thing to add is that yeah, generally the more specialised the assets. The higher you you will, the generally the higher the investment fees anyway as well. So make sure you're comparing apples with apples there, and you know you're looking at the sector costs because um, uh, a large cap US fund will be different to a a wine investment fund, let's say. Um, all right, and now investment trusts and funds. I mean, do you have a preference over these? Um, well, it's a good question. I mean, I have bought uh, mainly investment trusts um, historically. You know, I like the kind of closed ended structure which means that the fund manager can take a longer term uh, view when he's investing he doesn't have to worry about the ebb and flow of money in his uh, or her fund um that said you know uh, investment trusts do come with some additional complexities there's this thing about the discount and the premium um which is essentially just a measure of the difference in the share price of the investment trust, which is what you're buying and selling at, and the value of the assets in the uh, in the trust itself, yeah, that adds a bit of complexity. Um, and you know, the other thing to think about is is the fact that investment trusts can borrow money, and and you know that's great if they're borrowing money and they're using that to invest and they're getting a better return on that investment than the cost of the borrowing in the first place, that's great because it means it's having a very positive effect on your return. Uh, in, a, in a negative market where the returns are less than the cost of borrowing, obviously, then it's having a, 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 a much more negative effect on your on your return. So, you know, it, 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 there are definite advantages. There are some complexities you need to be aware of, but getting your head around them is not is not that difficult. I, th- I think the other thing is, is about the fact that um, investment trusts, because of their their very nature, allow fund managers to invest in some you know different stuff. Um, you know, we talked about song rights. There's a there's an investment trust out there that um, uh, invests in songs. Uh, Hypnosis, I think. Yeah, it? that's right. Um, you know, you can invest in nuclear fuel. You can invest in airline leasing, student accommodation. There's a investment trust actually just trying to launch at the moment that is trying to help the homeless by investing in, in property for, for homeless people. Yeah, th- those things, generally speaking, wouldn't happen in, a, in an open-ended fund. Yeah, yeah. But that your choice, I suppose, is, li- is somewhat limited. As I said, 3,500 funds, 400 investment trusts. Yeah, that's um, right, that's right. So you might just not be able to find the right thing in, in the investment trust um, world. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, so I suppose the final thing to say on on investment trusts, and and this is is good for people who, are, as I talked about earlier, who are looking to use income to pay expenses outside of you know reinvesting that, is that the investment trust structure uh, basically smooths out income. I won't go into all the sort of technicalities of it, but it basically smooths out income. So you tend to find that investment trusts pay a, a regular amount of income that's pretty much the same quarter on quarter if they're paying quarterly. Funds tend to go up and up and down in the amount of income they um, they pay out. Um, so, you know, again, not for everybody, but if you're looking for a regular smooth income, you've got to uh, uh, you know, a, a set of expenses you want to meet every quarter. Investment trusts come up for that. So, just before we go, of course, we've got to mention the guide um, where to invest over the next year. You know, download it and share it rigorously amongst your friends. Within it, we're having a look, a good look at the current 
environment and what are the risks in the short term and also some of the opportunities in the long term and how you can sort of invest accordingly. Then we've got some real practical tips around choosing a fund and also how to prepare your finances. And then we've got a bit of a thought piece that's looking at the future of capitalism and basically how companies are changing after 50 years of acting in a certain way. So it's really interesting uh, and there's a link in the bio to this pod and it's completely free. Um, I think the other thing to mention as well, we've been developing a very quick seven-day course. Uh, it's an email course, you sign up, you'll get an email every day and it basically points you in five or ten minutes or so to various bits of, of content um, on, our, on our website and gives you a complete sort of run up to being able to just get going and get investing. Um, so it's all the basics um, and, and it's pretty quick to do. Please give that a go. Um, uh, 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 again, you know, there'll be a link in the bio um, of this pod for you to sign up. Super. Um, well, that concludes today's show. Thank you very much for listening. You can check out all the previous apps of the pod on our website at stepstoinvesting.com. And of course, we'll be back next week. Until then, take care out there and happy investing. Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.